podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Liverpool and to the Manchester United weekly podcast from Merseyside, a very sunny um, Merseyside, beautiful day here, just after the Easter bank holiday weekend in the UK. Uh, lovely weather, a bit windy, which makes recording a podcast slightly tricky uh, outdoors, so I'm sheltered behind a World War One and Two memorial just out Liverpool Lime Street Station. Uh, it's... It, it's a lovely city, to be fair. Uh, I often feel <laughs> on a match day, coming from Manchester, when I've been here for a couple of Liverpool games, a couple of Anfield trips, one at Goodison and uh, even at Prenton Park at, at Tranmere Rovers, uh, two and a bit years ago now, I think that was January 2020, I always feel a little uncomfortable when I step off the train, as I think is probably natural on a match day when United are in, in town. Uh, but it, it is a lovely city and you, you come out of Lime Street Station, the main train station, and you're greeted with uh, this huge Radio City Tower, an iconic kind of, not skyline, but uh, one thing that juts out into the sky rather than a, a whole collection of things. And uh, I've been walking around the, the city today and uh, been to Anfield once already. It's It's great in that sense compared to, for example, uh, Madrid, where both the Bernabeu and the, the new one, the Metropolitano, are way, way out of town, both Liverpool, Everton and Tranmere as well, uh, although they're across the river in Birkenhead. Liverpool and Everton, obviously, across Stanley Park from each other, but also they're only 20 minutes from the town centre, which is uh, where, where I think football clubs should be well within reach of the, the town centre. It's about a 45 minute walk, but, but 15, 20 minutes on the bus, which is good. Uh, but yeah, lovely city and some some great architectures, great food, brilliant pubs. Um, unfortunately, two football teams uh, who we don't like. And the one tonight is Liverpool. It's it's a strange one, this. I mean, the mood is very <laughs> downbeat, isn't it? No one, people who have, have been speaking to people who say, well, I'd be happy with a 2-0 defeat. And that's, I'm I'm not sure I ever remember a mood like this going into a game. Uh, we went to the Etihad even a few weeks ago and thought we might be able to get something there. And we, we played okay. I thought the way we set up in the first half was good apart from the early laps of concentration we would have gone in level with something to play for the second half was rubbish but the first half was alright but the mood going into this one is is bad yeah a 2-0 defeat seems like it would be a good result people think we're going to get hammered I hope you're listening to this with the benefit of hindsight smiling to yourself and smirking after a historic and memorable United win that might put a dent in Liverpool's chances to do the quadruple but that is the reason that things are so bad, downbeat not only because United are poor and out of form and inconsistent and there's questions about the, the players mentality but also because this Liverpool team is their best for decades and it's brilliant 
I mean, it's probably the the best Liverpool team ever. But I wouldn't be able to judge from that if I've not watched the eighties team. Um, so yeah, the moves down beat. Can United get something here? I I can't really see it happening. Um, not at all. I think what the travelling supporters and what people watching from home will want to see is make it hard for Liverpool. Go out and make them, if they're going to win, make them earn the victory. And there are parallels to be drawn with when we were the world conquering Manchester United rather than the fourth place chasing and struggling United. And Liverpool were not so good. And Liverpool did make us for the most part I can't really remember any games where Liverpool didn't make us earn a victory we still didn't win very often at Anfield when we did it was memorable and difficult at Old Trafford they made it difficult they had great wins at Old Trafford that's what we need to do is make it hard for them and see where we are at 60 minutes and hopefully be in a good position to go and try and get something out of the game you hope that the little bit of hope as regards to top four at the weekend by us beating Norwich and Arsenal losing to Southampton and Spurs tripping up as well you hope that might do something to the players the other side of that of course is that Cristiano Ronaldo will be missing tonight after the yeah tragic and really devastating news um, that he revealed on Tuesday about the death of his baby boy which is just incredibly sad um, and yeah I, yeah, unimaginable. Um, there will be a the teams wearing black armbands, and there'll be a, a minutes applause, I think, or at least an applause on the seven minute mark uh, because of that news and uh, to show support for Ronaldo and his wife Georgina. Um, so it could be, it will be a strange one. It's what's also weird is that. I've come to Liverpool, the sun's out, the temperature's good, it's t-shirt and jumper weather, it's the end of the season, it's that brilliant April and May you get in football where the sun starts to come out and the whole sport feels different and you think, why why can't we have this all year? Um, drinking cold lager in, in the heat and in the sun. The problem and the, the bit that makes it weird is that normally when this time comes around you've got something really to you still have hope and you still have something to look forward to you have a league cup final well actually a league cup would have gone you have an fa cup final or semi-final or uh, a, a knockout game in the champions league or a proper tilt the title or you're going for something whatever size club you are and at the moment it doesn't quite feel like that for united but as is the way with football i'm sure united's traveling support the couple of thousand of them are coming will be able to get themselves up for this one tonight and how can you not Danfield away Field. Five minutes on four now and 
somehow you feel even with 4 0, I feel United almost got away with one. I was every bit as bad as we all predicted. Terrible. Right from the start. I was in the abysmal and. The result of everything the club has done over the last 10 years, 15 years even, but especially the last five or so, the chickens have really come home to roost. And this is evidence of that. 15 goals conceded in four games against our main two rivals, Liverpool and City this year. And every one of them deserved. All of them could have been much worse. That number could be 25, to be honest. Really good. A chastening evening. A sickening one to be sat in the middle of 20,000 scouts. Welcome to the Manchester United weekly podcast, One Sleep On from that horrible night at Anfield. Uh, we knew it was coming, but it was still torturous. And um, seeing Jurgen Klopp after he, he came into his press conference a little before Rav Rannick, and he just didn't even seem that bothered, which was uh, which almost made it worse. Liverpool's fans were, were buzzing, definitely, but they weren't gloating as they kind of should have done because United aren't a threat at all to them. That's how expected this massive 4-0 victory was. Um, and it, it, it was pathetic, but we needn't dwell on it too much more, Jack, for our own sake, as much as anything on, in terms of how pathetic it was. But what we can do is look at why it was so bad. And this wasn't just a matter of bad players against good players or high effort against little effort, was it? Well, I mean, firstly, I think we should take the positives from this that we've improved by one goal since the first game <laughs> of the season. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, I mean, I think after the first goal, obviously it, it became sort of effort levels were the, the main question. But even outside of that, you know, it was there was a lot more to the game than just United players looking sort of down and out. And you could see in the second half, like the second half was especially before Liverpool's third goal was okay yeah. but I, and if we'd have played like that the whole game I, we probably would we still would have lost you know, we still lost the second half 2-0 but I, I would have been okay with that performance but even with that we weren't the better team you know Liverpool I, as from a footballing perspective are miles and miles clear of us and we could have had 11 players putting in you know at the very top of their game you know, feeling so confident, putting in the maximum amount of effort you could ever ask for, and it still wouldn't have made much difference. Liverpool's the the way that they're able to string attacks together at the moment, we just couldn't live with it. We're not very good at dealing with teams that have good movement and can move the ball quickly yeah. in general, and they are two things that Liverpool excel at. Yeah, I think I, I yeah I said that in the the bit that I recorded uh, before the game in Liverpool that it, it, we. We don't need to see United win at Anfield against the best Liverpool team possibly ever because they're brilliant. It was it was the manner in which we we lost. Um, yeah, and they are a, they are just a really they are not only are they a great team coached in a great way, but they also have so much confidence at the moment that I think this is what I said to to an Uber driver I had after the game that you look at like a a good but kind of yeah a good player like Jordan Henderson but not a great player and his first touch is 
opening his body up, confident. It doesn't matter if someone's pressing him and his passing is is hard and strong and he, he looks for the pass forwards. He doesn't go backwards. And then you look at United and, and that is a matter of confidence because you put Jordan Henderson in this United team and he wouldn't be playing like that. Yeah. And you look at United's players who should have, uh, who, who do have the, the same, if not better ability than that. And their touches, they close their body up when they receive the ball. They're scared of the Liverpool players coming onto them. They pass backwards whenever possible uh, to, to kind of escape from the, they don't dare to pass forward, which is actually something Randick said in, in the press conference after that. It took a while for the journalists to kind of tease it out of him but eventually he said the line yeah I think they they didn't dare attack Liverpool they were scared to attack Liverpool and that was the truth and the, the irony of that is as well that actually throughout the game we actually had quite a bit of joy against like there were even in the first half there were three yeah. occasions where that ball just over one the top, ball over yeah. the top yeah we very very nearly got in it was twice it went to Rashford once he couldn't bring it down and once Allison just got there ahead of him, another time I went to Elanga and Elanga's first touch wasn't quite good enough. Like there was a very clear route to success for us in the, in the game. I, I'm, I'm not saying route to success that like we easily could have won the game, but there was an, a very clear way that we could get at Liverpool and, and create it, opportunities for ourselves. Were it not for Allison being so proactive off his goal line and very good, then one of those chances, even if Rashford, his touch isn't good at the moment, because he's not confident. Even if Rashford hadn't made a great first touch, he might have had a chance to shoot. But Alisson was yeah. so quick out of his goal that it just, there was, there was never an opportunity to do that. So there is space in behind that Liverpool bat line, but it's partly because they know they can rely on their, their keeper to, yeah. to mop up. A Liverpool fan um, responded to my tweet saying that, saying that it's almost like Liverpool almost like tempt you to do it because they play this insanely high line yeah. and they just, they basically just back themselves that they're, they're better at defending like that than you are attacking that way of defending. And most of the time it works for them. But it was just like, there were some quite obvious things that we could do to win, to not, not to win, but you know, to get at Liverpool. We had two guys up front that are absolutely rapid. One of the best things that they do is make good runs in behind. And we did it three times all game. You know, that, that basically should have been, I think, almost like the default for us in, in attack. Like obviously you try and keep, keep the ball where you can, but the second you see an opportunity to do it, Play, play the pass. You know, that was clearly our route to, yeah. to success. In and the we game. didn't. The, no. the, the frustration of um, Rashford and then Sancho when he came on, literally within two minutes of Sancho coming on, he'd already thrown his arms up in the air twice because he hadn't been spotted or if he had been spotted, the pass hadn't been made. I think it was by uh, Dallow and Lindelof on the first couple of occasions, but it was, it was all, the whole team. Um, and Rashford had it in the first half Lingard had it uh, Alanga had it as well we just the, the players in deep and, and actually Mo Salah said after the game and it, it sounded like he was talking about United he said they make it so easy uh, which we did for them but he was actually as he's cleared up on Twitter now he was actually talking about his own teammates his, the Liverpool midfielders and defenders that they make it so easy United do the opposite they make it so much harder to attack not only because they're rubbish at defending at the moment, but also because they don't have the the combination of confidence and ability to play those passes. And so it, it didn't happen. Um, I, I think one of the key points I'm taking out of this game 
is in the last few weeks and months that De Gea has been a good shot stopper and we have spoken about how that's that's not enough but given the situation with his wages and with um, Henderson probably going and and all all the factors kind of flying around we've said ultimately we might have to just stick with him for now I think this game more than any other I've seen showed exactly how much of a limitation De Gea is on this team within even before their first goal which was in the fourth or fifth minute he He'd kick the ball out of play twice. And it just, he was one of the reasons and um, loads of the players were, but like the, the first touch of Wan-Bissaka was another reason, the inability of uh, uh, so many. Um, but I'm going to focus on De Gea. It, he invited Liverpool's pressure onto us and, and prevented us from ever kind of just slowing the game down a little bit. And I think that was a... I didn't think I was near the final straw, but that performance was really indicative of just how much he holds his team back. Yeah, I've got to say it was um, it was quite jarring to me earlier on in the week when Ranić said after the Norwich game, I think that goalkeeper is the one area where United probably don't need to strengthen. Everywhere else is sort of up, up is on the table. <laughs> I was thinking, no, <laughs> that, that actually would be quite high on my list of places to to strengthen. Like, obviously, Day is not. The, the the biggest issue in the team, but he is a huge part of what is stopping us from establishing decent attacking platforms. I, it, it wasn't just him. I, to me, it was it was the the whole defense because De Gea firstly doesn't command. When we think about goalkeepers sort of commanding their box, generally that sort of means they organize a defense in front of them and they come out, they claim crosses, whatever. But actually, what I mean in this sense is when De Gea has the ball, he doesn't command his defense properly because what you want is a goalkeeper who gets the ball and immediately is telling the centre-backs to drop, to go out and wide, basically, so that they can give him a good angle, which then opens up space for the midfielders to receive the ball yeah. as well. It, assuming that you want to play out from the back, which I think most of us would like United to, to, to do. But De Gea receives the ball and every time he does nothing, he sort of looks around with no real conviction to actually trying to play out from the back properly. And then that, that's, that feeds into the defenders as well. Every time De Gea picked up the ball, Maguire, Jones, Lindelof, you could see partly because they don't have any confidence and partly because De Gea is not sort of inviting them to do it. There's no, no ever intention of dropping deep to try and receive the ball because they're all, they're all just shit scared that they're going to lose it. Like and the confidence of everyone nothing, in the team is just on the floor. There was one particular example I thought that showed not exactly that point, but the wider kind of idea about players not trusting each other in this team. And that was when, I think, I can't remember who passed it to him, but Bruno Fernandes had the ball uh, on what would have been kind of our right back position in the first half. And he was trying to, he, there was no one for him to pass to down the channel. Wambasaka wasn't there. Neither was uh, who would have been there, Lingard or Alanga, whichever one was on that side at the moment. They weren't there. He couldn't see that pass. So he, he turns inside. And even when he turns inside, De Gea is completely wide open in space with no one pressing him. It's not as if you're going to pass back to him and he's immediately going to be under pressure. He was a perfect option. And Bruno just decided to kind of turn and turn and turn until he lost the ball instead, which is a fault of Fernandez. Sure, but also just shows how little faith he has in, in De Gea. And, and yeah, you're right. Goal kicks were a real kind of microcosm of everything that was wrong in that the players didn't look like they knew what they were doing. So Maguire and Jones would sit uh, on either side of De Gea in the box, but they never looked like they knew what the next step was. And so they never asked for the ball properly. De Gea never told them, here, have the ball, make sure you do something with it because there's not that accountability or... um or, or conviction in what you're doing. 
and and the same was yeah. true. And, and so what happened is we just kicked the ball out of uh, time and time again. But the same was true all over the pitch. We didn't look, the, the players looked like they didn't know what their roles were. And when you don't know what you're doing, you don't have any belief in it. And then you try less hard to do it. And so, yes, there was a lack of effort, I think. And, uh, and that, that's another point. But there was also, there was, there was partly a lack of effort, just of lack of effort. And that's unacceptable. But there was also that thing of players don't know what they're doing. The natural consequences well, it's, it's the kind of, uh, how have we phrased it before? The kind of subconscious natural consequences are I'm not trying as hard. Yeah, the the, the centre-back thing of sort of not wanting to receive the ball, it was, I, I, I spotted it straight away because I've been there. Like I play centre-back and there have been times, I, I don't particularly enjoy receiving the ball in my own box from goal kicks, but there have been times when, you know, coaches have asked the team that I've been playing on that that's how we want to play. And you, you sort of just stand there and you you sort of, make it very clear that you don't really want to receive the ball, but you also do it because you, you you know, you want to do what the coach says. And it was so obvious to me watching that. That was exactly what was going on with, with Maguire, Jones and Lindelof. And it's just, I think it's indicative of two things. One, the confidence is just, it's shattered for every single player on that team, yeah. probably with the exception of Ronaldo, who obviously wasn't playing there. I think every single one of them is just so down on confidence. And, it's that plus no one wants to take responsibility at the moment. And that is, that is partly a consequence of the confidence being low, but I don't think there's anyone in that team who wants to say, give me the ball. I will, you know, take responsibility and I'll take it on the chin. If I mess up, there's no yeah. one at all that, that wants to do that. And, and I think that is, fair, it is partly confidence. Yeah. But that also goes back to a, and this is kind of a separate point, but the fact that Ranjit came in and basically abandoned his kind of identity and his style of play yeah. meant that it, yeah. by abandoning that, you, you, you start putting more responsibility on the players again. And, and sometimes that can be good, but in, in the situation you're talking about and we're talking about where you have to, the, the thing with Guardiola is he'll tell his players, yeah, you might concede a goal when we try to play out from the back and we lose it at some point during the season, maybe two or three or four, or whatever. But I don't care. I, like, I'm your manager. And I don't care. And that's, this is what I want you to do. And when it goes wrong, I'll take responsibility for that. When a manager comes in and kind of abandons their principles, not principles, but kind of identity as a team, you no longer have that. And so that's another reason <laughs> on, on, yeah. on the many others, on top of many others as well. And, and again, well, we've, we've said before that, it's not acceptable for the players to, at least from the outside, it seems like they're, they've almost sort of given up and haven't really bought into what Ranić's doing. But you can also kind of understand a little bit why they would be hesitant because of stuff like that. Like it was clear from the start that Ranić came in with these big ideas and, and made a, a very conscious effort, especially in the media, to make it very clear what he was going to be trying to, to implement at United in terms of the playing style. But then within yeah. a month or so, it had gone. You know, the formation had changed two or three times. There wasn't really this this high press anymore. We weren't really playing out from the back. Like as as much as as we can say, you know, it's terrible that the that the players have, have you know reacted this way. Maybe haven't bought in in, in the way that we wanted. Just from a, a general sort of human level, you can sort of understand why they they didn't because it, it has been set up in a way that makes it difficult too fully believe in into what Ranić was was trying to do. Uh, why yeah. that happened, I, I don't exactly know. I guess it was sort of pressure for instant results, maybe. Um, but it, it is odd that 
for a guy that whose footballing philosophy was so, so, so clear and has been for so long, you know, it was almost ironic to see Liverpool's, Klopp's Liverpool team playing that way down to an absolute T and yeah. see us. I did find it, um, I found it interesting after the match, Rannick. Again, it took a while for it to come out, but he eventually was drawn to say, he basically said, yeah, the players like didn't follow my instructions. Yeah. He said, the, for example, the, the pass to Alanga uh, and the pass to Hannibal that Maguire made. He didn't mention the Hannibal one, but he did mention that Maguire's pass to, I think it was Maguire to Alanga, um, that led to, what, the third goal, I think. I think it was the third goal, yeah. Um, he basically said that was on the blacklist of things not to go, to, to do against Liverpool. And I mean, that's the, the clearest thing. And then he also spoke about the pressing not being there in the first half, but being there in the second and, and the way he wanted to attack. And he just thought, so yeah. there clearly was quite a decent game plan here. It just the players simply failed to do it at all. And so that, that obviously it yeah. always comes down to the coach as well, that they were, maybe they weren't uh, prepared well enough or didn't understand their roles well enough or not motivated well enough. Ultimately, failure in football normally comes down to the coach, but it's whoever you want to blame. It's clear there was a decent game plan, actually, and it, it just wasn't followed. Yeah. And I think what what's so crazy about this whole situation as well is that expectations were so low. They were so low yeah. for this game. You know, like like I said, we we ended up losing the second half 2-0, the same score as we lost the first half. If we'd have, if you'd have repeated the second half twice and that was the entire game, honestly, I would have come away and I obviously would have been disappointed with the result. I wouldn't have been that upset with the performance. And that yeah. is how, that's how bad the situation is that we could have played really quite badly because the second half still wasn't good. And it would have been okay-ish. But that first half, like the expectations were on the floor and we still managed yeah. to come out and play so much, so much below those expectations. Like it was just the absolute bare minimum we didn't do. Because there was a period the first, before Liverpool's third goal, I, the game was pretty 50-50 in that, in that and period. There was a lot of frustration from the Liverpool fans born out yeah, of kind was, of tension because obviously they're in a, a title race and yeah, and even when honest, you're 2-0 like, up in a title race it feels very nervous and, and that frustration was yeah. really really coming across and the players were starting we to react we to we easily could have, could have scored at least one goal in that, in that period if, if we not should have done if not more yeah and like we had the that, that's the thing like, we, we could have taken as a fan base we could have taken losing like I'm not, I'm not gonna be funny. It's no shame to lose to Liverpool at the moment. Like as as much as yeah. it's an awful game to lose as a United fan because it's your your biggest rivals and going to Anfield and losing is a horrible feeling. It's no shame to lose them. They're probably the best team in the world alongside Man, Man City at the moment. Yeah, There's, it's no shame in losing to them. It what you can't do is you can't show up and put out that absolute disgrace that we did in the first half. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is a, I think a lot of people had their, in the same way with De Gea, a lot of people saw that performance, a lot of defenders of Maguire, and I'd include myself in that, who's, I mean, I've accepted for for many months he's been rubbish, but kind of general defenders of the whole Maguire as a decent player. But that was a completely atrocious performance. And I think he's worst yet, I think. The the positioning was was like breathtakingly bad. bad. I mean, that first goal... And I know that this wasn't just him, but he was a big part of that first goal. Like yeah. they hit the three on one in our own penalty box. Because the, how, so how many, is that allowed it, to happen? You know, like 
I get it. Play, players beat an offside trap sometimes. Well, yeah. But. So Lindelof stepped up for the offside trap, but Diaz beat him. You, you can't get the offside. Yards deeper than Lindelof because Jones didn't play offside. Maguire was just completely caught between two decisions, and whatever he says pre-match, he's clearly not confident in his own performances because he can never make his mind up on who he wanted to mark. He didn't go close to, to Mane, who was playing the pass, but he also didn't retreat either. But it started from the front where kind of Bruno did his one man press thing where you know yeah. the shape between Rashford, Alanga and Bruno was at, at one point too close and then too separated there was no this was a team that there was yeah there was a game plan but it was so poorly executed that it ended up being even worse for us and then there was a, a bit of a matter of desire because Trent and Salah were both in the same space competing for the same ball meanwhile yeah. Alanga was eight yards behind them having been ahead of Alexander-Arnold he could have got back and and Lindelof got beaten by Diaz. That's probably just a matter of speed, to be fair. But yeah, the the number of problems in one goal yeah. is on yeah. um on Maguire. I, a couple of things. One, I didn't get why he played on the left of the back three. Like to me, the when you play in a back three, you should play Maguire in the in the centre because that's where his lack of pace won't show up as much. Like and and that doesn't excuse his performance. It was a, it was still awful but for all of his faults Phil Jones actually is is relatively quick or at least in comparison to to Maguire and I I didn't really get why you wouldn't play Maguire as the central centre-back in that back three because that felt like a much better fit with his skill set two in terms of his actual play like he hasn't been good enough and I would also class myself as someone who has sort of been on on the Maguire side of, of yeah. things, sort of of the split in the fan base. This, this was certainly his worst performance. And I think my take on him really hasn't changed that much in the whole season is that I think Maguire is a good defender, but I don't think his game, I don't think his play style suits a top team, I think is where I would go with that. Um, because I, I, he can't play in a high line, really, unless he has a centre-back next to him who is you know, a world-class sweeper who Varane maybe is, but they haven't really worked out very well together when they've played anyway. And he also, he's good on the ball, but not good enough to make up for his his deficiencies in defence. But to be honest, the, the, the main thing that I am, I'm frustrated about with Maguire was that interview that you mentioned where he claimed he was like, what the fuck? I know, yeah. I, I also think the the on on the pitch was he bet he spent half of the game just pointing and yeah. and clear, asking for offside and at no point did the United captain at Anfield do yeah. anything to a, to stop what was going on. He didn't he he wasn't the one to put in a challenge that kind of got the message out there that actually this isn't acceptable. Everyone step up. He wasn't the one shouting at his players. The only time he ever spoke to the referee even to ask for something was uh, right at the end with Hannibal to try and not get him but sent that, off. That's the thing, like, and it was, was left to Hannibal to come out, to come in and, and rough Liverpool up a little bit. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that that was like, you know, we should have just gone yeah, in and tried help to, much. you know, break their legs. But like, as, as captain, you have to set the tone at some point. And when you're 2-0 down and you can quite clearly see that everyone around you is almost giving up on this game, like, go, like, go and put a massive tap change in. Get a yellow card. It doesn't matter. Like, Try and do something to sort of change the, the feeling of the game. Like it to me, and this is where I come back to that interview. So, if anyone who hasn't seen it, McGuire did an interview that came out. Was it earlier on? I think it was earlier on in the day. 
of yeah. the Liverpool game, basically saying he was asked about his own form and he was like, well, two different managers have kept me in the starting 11. So my form can't be that bad. You know, I'm clearly playing well, which firstly have some self-awareness. But second, like to me, what that spoke to is just that a, a captain obviously needs to be a, a leader on the pitch. But actually, I think what's more important for a captain is a big picture. They, they set and drive a culture in the dressing room. And a lot of that happens by leading from example. What kind of example does that set to everyone else in that dressing room? It, what you want from a captain is a culture of accountability to yourself and to your teammates. He is showing yeah. absolutely no accountability to anyone for his own performances. Like if Maguire actually believes that he's been playing well all season, then quite frankly, he shouldn't really be playing anyway because he, he clearly can't, if he can't judge his own performances like that, then his judgment in the game has got to be questioned as well. Like you want your captain to come out and say, yeah, look, I know I have, haven't been playing well. You know, I take full responsibility for that. As captain of this team, it's me that has to, you know, set the example, lead everyone forward. I'm working hard to improve yeah. it. And I know that my place in the team isn't guaranteed if I don't play well. You know, like just take some of, amount of, of res- responsibility for your own performances like that to me was an absolute joke like that for all of his faults. I, I don't believe that on the pitch Maguire is fully to blame for his bad performances. He is a lot of it, but he's also been put in bad situations, but that is completely of his own doing. And was, I was so, so frustrating to hear what he said in that interview. Yep. And on that note, let's talk a couple of, uh, well, let's move on from the, the Liverpool game directly. Look, we're going to answer two patron uh, questions. First from Reed Blazer, who says, with the number of players that look set to leave this summer, it seems like we may need to rely on some academy players having a role in the first team. Which players do you think have the best chance of breaking into the first team next season? Reed suggests Hannibal and Ethan Laird and possibly James Garner as well. Um, I, I actually think this is quite limited. So Hannibal, yes definitely is is worthy of a place. Garner is, I think, uh, look, he's, he's doing very well at, at Nottingham Forest, but he is playing in the championship. And ultimately what it will come down to is how does he do in pre-season and in training? And does the new manager, Eric Ten Hag, look at him and think, yeah, he's let me give him a chance in the Premier League? Or do Nottingham Forest get promoted and, and he, he stays with them for another season? I think if he stays with them for another season, he, he probably won't have... I think if he's going to have a United career, it will begin next season rather than a season later. I can't really see it happening if it if he comes into team at 22 or something. It's probably a bit late. But yeah, I think, I think that's dependent on what the manager sees in training. As for Ethan Laird, probably not ready again, has mainly played at right wing back for first MK Dons and then Swansea. Did play for Bournemouth his first start the other day and and did very well, but needs, I think, probably a season at Premier League level. Again, that kind of depends. Does If he does really well in pre-season, then yeah, you keep him. You you definitely give all of these chances in pre-season. As for others... uh, We'll see if Garnacho carries on his his form and developing quickly. He can have a kind of outside role. I think prob- there are a few. That I, I don't think there are that many other obvious ones. Dylan Levitt could come back again. Another one to judge in preseason. Other than that, I think there's a few that a few names that people mentioned that are probably better out going on loan. Like Avara Fernandez should get a loan move. Uh, Zidane Iqbal should get a loan move. Charlie Savage should get a loan move. All good players. All not ready for the United first team regularly all ready for a loan move, I think. Yeah, I, I don't think it will be huge. So, so I don't think anyone will come out of complete left field. It'll, it'll be Hannibal and I think it'll be Garner and probably Laird as the three that have 
have the most chance. But I mean, as we saw with Ilanga, like Ilanga was in that kind of boat as as those players have just mentioned. And sometimes all it takes is, you know, an, an impressive training session first up with a new manager. And, and it can, yeah. it can really change things because then once you get into the first team and you get sort of your confidence going, you become more accustomed to being in the first team playing at that kind of level. It can sort of carry on from there. So there is opportunities with a new manager coming in that some a young player, even one of those that we've mentioned, or someone different, could manage to impress in preseason. <clears throat> I, I think Ghana is probably the one. I, I think Ghana is the one that could end up playing a, the biggest role next season. But I think there's also a chance that he yeah. plays no role next season, if that makes sense. Like, I think Agreed, guys like yeah. Hannibal will probably play a, a a limited role in in like cup games. He might be on the bench here and there, but I think. It, I don't think he will be a you know an Elanga type, and I also don't think he'll be you know nothing in the first team. Whereas I think with Ghana, if he comes in and does impress well enough early, he could come in and play relatively regularly, at least as sort of a you know a rotational player, yeah. somebody who comes off the bench relatively and, often. And it's worth remembering that the because of the were uh, because of the Winter World Cup, whatever European tournament United are in, if any, but let's say it's Europa League. There is eight. There's six Europa League games in eight weeks, so squad management's going to be yeah. massive, and it, and that's going to be Ghana's chance. Even if he's not in the team at the start of season, let's say he plays all six Europa League games, that's still pretty much. If you had the League Cup third round in there as well, that's basically one game a week for eight weeks. Yeah, that's that's a good amount of game time, and that's enough of a chance. If 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 he shows enough in that, then you bring him into the league team. If he doesn't, then that's it, it, that's his chance. Um, yeah, and it's also in a part of the pitch where you know you'd obviously expect United to make quite a few signings this summer, but yeah, you know, it's in a part of the pitch where we are quite thin because with Matic and Pogba leaving, probably at, at the very least, it seems like you know even if we make two or three signings, Ghana will still be needed as depth there. Yeah, the the only Alanga equivalent for me is Garnacho, but I always think basically, basically yeah. the only equivalent is another wide player because that's the easiest place to come into the team where you can make mistakes and it doesn't really matter and you can mess up and it doesn't really matter and you can kind of have 10 minutes and, and get off the bench and and you can make an impact in those 10 minutes whereas it's much harder to do that as a midfielder uh, a number 10 a striker a centre-back or a full-back etc and that's why and Garnacho is at that level where he could come in and suddenly do well and just kind of fly but also he isn't at, I, I, I wrote a piece for you like we stand about two months before Alanga came into the team saying he's the, exactly the kind of player who could get a first team chance and just become a first team player or he'll get the first team chance and look okay and then not play for, again for another year or something because his development isn't quite there yet and I think Garnacho at some point next season will be in a similar place um, Reed's asked another question about Alanga but we're going to hold that one for another week Corey Lennox says don't really want to speak about the match if I'm honest yet yeah, uh, agreed he says reports are coming in of a revolution this summer could there be 6 to 10 new players coming in how realistic do you think this is unrealistic I think United will sign a third choice goalkeeper someone like Sam Johnston I think has been rumoured another kind of Tom Heaton-esque signing uh, I'm assuming that this is assuming that Henderson's going to leave. There are obviously lots of players going out, Cavani, Matic, uh, and we're pretty sure uh, Pogba Lingard matter as well. And maybe, maybe I missed anyone Jones, there. Although less, less obvious. Poss- yeah. Um, players are going to have to come in. Rannick after Liverpool game said six to 10 new players 
need to come in. And I think it got inferred as this summer. And I think actually what he was talking about was in terms of the whole rebuild of the squad. So I think more likely is United will sign four players, five, six at very best with like three of them squad players, but proper first team players, four would be, I think, more realistic. Yeah, I I can't see six to 10 coming in. You know, four is probably a good number. And I I think it it sort of depends how we approach the transfer window because I, I could see an argument for saying, you know, we we need to get back on track now. And so you sign, you know, maybe three or four relatively big money signings that will come in and will be first choice players from the, the very start. Or you could sort of say this, you know, we're not going to realistically compete for the league this season. Let's sort of build out the squad with maybe more players of a slightly lower caliber who can hopefully improve and develop whatever. Maybe, maybe at that, if you take that approach, maybe you get six but even then, I think that that's a lot and will be... The problem is all of our outgoings aren't going to be generating money either. You know, pretty much all the ones we mentioned are going to be leaving on a free. And so, yeah, you free up you free up the wage bill quite significantly. But how much are we going to have? There, there's been very, very conflicting reports about how much money is going to be available in the summer for transfers. There's some people saying the new manager is going to have a huge pile of money to to spend. Some saying it could be as little as £20 million. So it, it's all a bit up in the air, but I, I don't think you'll see six to 10. I think it will be probably three yeah. to five. Okay, let's wrap up there. We will obviously be talking about transfers and, and rebuilds um, a lot more in the, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, we'll dedicate some more time to that. If you want to be a patron and get your questions in, have them answered every week, you can go to our Twitter at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there uh, to find out information about how to do that for, I think it's about a quid a week on on average or it can be more if you so choose. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, try not to be too down about the game. The sun is shining in, in Manchester, which does help, uh, certainly. Uh, we will speak to you after our next game which is against Arsenal, and then it's Chelsea. So (laughs) this might not be the lowest yet, but let's hope that was the low and things are going to get slightly better. Fingers crossed. Speaking of it, goodbye. Podcast Network.